Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. What's up, everyone? My name is Michael Loveday, if you don't know who I am, um, and I'm on staff here with Campus Collective, and I'm pumped to be here with you guys tonight. I'm just getting the opportunity to dive into God's Word. Um, This is something that I wrestle with and some stuff that I like to study and learn more about, so I'm really excited to be here and be able to talk about this tonight. But tonight, we will be looking at Hebrews 12, 3 through 17, uh, focusing around the idea and continuing the idea of enduring the race. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. It will also be up on the screen. Um, But for those of you that know me, know that I do not like running. I I hate it. Um, Unless there is a ball, a frisbee, something involved that requires me to chase after it, I'll do it. Or I'll just run for my life if somebody's chasing me. But if there's not a ball or anything involved, I'm not going to do it. I'm just not built for long distances. I relate so well with what Gimli says in Lord of the Rings where he says, I am wasted on cross country. We dwarves are natural sprinters, very dangerous over short distances. I feel like I relate to that. I'm pretty short, but um, it's true for me. I played sports that required quick bursts of energy and a sprint to score in some fashion or to get to the other side. The only racing that I ever did was swimming. And even then, you're still not running, so I felt like I was cheating the system. But... Um, those of you that know my wife, Kristen, you know that she is built completely differently than I am. She can run and run and run, and she loves it. I think, if I'm correct, she actually had the opportunity to run collegially. She just didn't. Um, but while we were in seminary, while we lived in North Carolina, we decided that we're going to sign up for a marathon. Why not? We signed up for the Disney Marathon. I thought if I was going to do it, I might as well be able to see some things while I did it. Um, But remember, I hate running, and I've never done a race before. I don't know why I decided to do one of the biggest races, 26.2 miles for my first race. I could have done a 5K. Shoot, I could have even done a 1K uh, or a one mile, but I chose to do the big one anyways. So um, Kristen started training me. We started small, started doing maybe one mile, maybe adding two after that. I can't even remember. I tried to block it out. But I think we honestly started with 10 minutes straight, and then from there we built up. Um, In our training, we only made it to mile 15. Kristen's not here to defend herself, so she would say that it's 19, but I remember the pain better than she does, so it's 15. We're going to stick with that. Um, But notice how I didn't say 26. We would run, and I would be in so much pain, but Kristen would push me harder than I ever been pushed physically. She did that so... I would be able to endure the race. She would discipline me physically so that I would be able to push through. Well, 15 miles was the max, remind you, and we got to Disney World. Uh, Kristen, our friend Ashley that went to seminary with us, and myself, we all decided that we were going to run together. And Kristen was going to be our pacer because she has a better internal clock. She ran for a long period of time. Me and Ashley have no clue. We'd probably burn ourselves out um, from the get-go. But... We got into the corral at Disney, which 
probably was like 2,000 people in this one area, and you can see Kristen starting to freak out. The gun goes off. Kristen bolts. She takes off. She leaves us, and that's fine, and we didn't hold it against her. She was going to run much faster than us anyways, and we didn't want to hold her back. So Ashley and I kept on going, and to our surprise, we held a good pace. Our goal was to hold a 10-minute mile for 26.2 miles, and one after another, the miles started dropping. We made it to the halfway point. We were feeling great. Our, there was no pain. We weren't winded. I was like, man, we're doing pretty good. And then a couple more miles passed, 15, 17, and then mile 19 hit, and the pain kicked in. The mental game started to fail. I think I stopped at every medical stand from there to the end of the race <laughs> just so I could get cushion to put on the balls of my feet. Um, but it didn't help. But during, those, during the mile 19, all the way to the end of the race, I was like, I'm not going to finish this. There's no way. Um, I don't think I can endure any more of this. Luckily, there was a little bit of extra discipline in the race that pushed Ashley and I along, the discipline being the balloon lady. Now, the balloon lady is the sick, twisted thing that Disney created to motivate people to move faster. But Ashley and I did not know that the balloon lady did not apply to us. It only applied to people that did the dopey challenge, which were the crazy people that decided to run a 5K, 10K, half marathon, and a full marathon all in one weekend. And thankfully, we did not get caught by her because I really think I would have pushed her down and popped her balloon just so I can continue the race. But we finished. Nobody got hurt. Too bad. Kristen finished in around four hours. I finished around seven. And I know that's slow, but that's okay. I just wanted to survive, and I did. Um, but I wanted to share that story with you because our walk with Christ is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's hard. It's painful. And sometimes it seems impossible to continue in the race um, of our faith. But we have to understand and see in the text tonight is that we have to consider Jesus, who endured perfectly, and trust his discipline so we can better endure and finish the race of faith. And with that main idea in mind, we have to see these three things to understand that truth. We have to remember Jesus. We have to understand the discipline of the Father, and we have to keep running. And my prayer for tonight is that we can clearly see what the Lord is teaching us here so we can better endure in our walk with him and finish the race well. But I don't want to waste any more time. Let's go ahead and dive in. Um, I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 12 just to give a little bit of context of what we went through last week. But Hebrews 12 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for, it is for discipline that you have, been, you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? 
If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may by many by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards he, when he desired the inheritance to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you, um, Lord, for your grace and your mercy that you show us. Lord, I pray tonight that you would speak to us clearly, um, that I would just step aside and that we would be able to see and learn from what you are teaching us here. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Before we start in, these, in verse 3, it is important for us to understand the context of this passage. Over the last several weeks, we have spent our time in chapter 11, the Hall of Faith. Andrew taught that section and Eric discussing chapter 12 in the first two verses. Which chapter 12 starts by saying, therefore causing us to look back at chapter 11, which chapter 11 is looking at our earthly fathers in history and seeing the faith that they had and learning from their example to continue to run the race that is before us by learning from them. We see the faith of Noah building the ark while the rest of the world was condemned. Abraham seeing his faith through the struggle of offering his son as a sacrifice to the Lord and that he will be made into a great nation. Sarah and her faith that she will have a son in her old age or Moses and the people showing their faith in escaping Egypt and crossing the Red Sea. All these people face trials, struggles, persecution, testing from the Lord, and chapter 11 continues to say that others in the faith have suffered mocking, flogging, even chains and imprisonment for their faith. Some were stoned or sawn in two or killed by the sword. Sawn by the sword, but they ran the race of faith to completion in Christ, trusting, seeking him more through those sufferings. And that is the point of the discipline from the Father, to seek him more, trusting him more when the going gets tougher and tougher and you don't feel like you can keep on going. It causes us to fully depend on him. The people in these stories are truly incredible examples to learn from and how to fight to remain in the faith. But the point of chapter 11 is not to look to our earthly fathers in the Old Testament as the only example, but has a greater purpose of pointing us to verses 1 through 3 in chapter 12, 12, where it tells us to consider Jesus, our ultimate source of strength and ability to understand the Heavenly Father's discipline and how to finish finish strong and endure. Look again what verse 3 says. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. How often do we do this? How often do we forget that what Christ has done 
when we are weary or going through trials in our walk. We all do it, and it's easy for us to do this. I know that whenever I feel the weight of the world on my shoulders, I go into worst-case scenario, lose all hope. Sometimes I give up on things and become consumed with anxiety and fear. But instead of having those thoughts, I should remember what Christ has done so that I don't have to respond in those ways. Instead, using those times where there are trials to fully depend on him and trust in his grace and his provision. We all have to consider Jesus. We saw the faith of everyone that was listed in chapter 11, but we have to consider the faith of Jesus as well. None of the Old Testament figures suffered or acted to the point of death for the elect, but Jesus did. When he was beaten, mocked, died, and was resurrected for you so that we may be in future glory with him. Jesus endured through faith when we when persecution by sinners in such hostility. He endured, so we must also endure. But look at the way that he endured in verse 2 of chapter 12. And Eric taught this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? Yes, Jesus faced hostility and persecution, but he faced it with joy continuing in faith in the Father, enduring in the discipline that was set before him by the Father so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted when we face trials and face the discipline or the testing of the Father. The author is saying these things to get us to see the bigger picture and to prepare us for the discipline of the Father, causing us to consider Jesus and to remember him and what he went through and how he endured So when we face the struggles and when we face the discipline, we can endure to the end. Look at verses four through nine. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And let's pause there for a second. I love what the author says in the statement that he makes in your struggle against sin. The statement shows the weight, the danger, and the seriousness of what sin can do. We saw in the previous chapter this idea of struggle as persecution, but here it is focusing around the idea of weight of sin and what it can do and the fact that it is a struggle. We are enduring the fight against sin or resisting the struggle to fall into sin by the sin of the world. Which scholars go both ways on this saying, this would be the struggle of persecution of, a, of sinful people or the struggle of sin within us, or the struggle we face with our sin. I also love that the author says the words, not yet. Sure, majority of the people in this room, maybe even none of us, will ever face the struggle of sin to the point of shedding our blood like the people in the Old Testament, like Jesus did on the cross, or like other believers and missionaries around the world. But it is still a possibility for all of us. We have to remember that the comforts that we know in our everyday lives right now are not promised forever. And this makes me think of James chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When you meet trials, not if, but when. You may not yet have faced trials or persecution in your struggle against sin, but you will. Maybe not to the point of death, maybe not to the point of shedding your blood, but to the point where you will need to endure in the faith and fully depend on Christ and his strength. But are these trials and disciplines a direct response to our sin? Which the answer I came up with is, I don't know. And I don't think that we ever will know. 
and that's okay. I do, however, think that it can be unhealthy and dangerous to think or say that God acts in a karma kind of way. The author continues in verses nine or five through nine, showing us the reason for the Lord's discipline. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father did not dis- or does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subjected, subject to the Father of spirits and live? And this is such a beautiful thing. The author here is speaking to a Jewish community so that people would know the reference that he is making because of their knowledge of the Old Testament. The author is quoting Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, where Solomon is communicating with his son about the Lord's discipline. And what he is saying in verses 5 through 9 is so beautiful, which some of you might think, why in the world would discipline be beautiful? And it is because everything the author is saying in these verses is leading us to get to understand the point or the reason of why the Lord is disciplining us. It's because he loves us and counts us as his sons and daughters. Do you see that? We are so loved by the Father. And maybe you missed it. Again, it says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The author here is trying to get the people and us to not scorn God's discipline because discipline is a sign of sonship. We are part of his family. He is our father. The very presence of the Lord's discipline in a person's life is evidence that the person is loved by God. But how do we know that the trials and the discipline in our life are from God? Which is also another good question that Dustin asked me. And I believe John Piper answers this beautifully in one of his articles in Desiring God. He says, I think my final underlying answer to the person who asks when they, well then, how do I know if I am being disciplined is when they are really asking, how do I know if I have sinned? And the answer is, read your Bible. Don't base your conclusion about whether you have done something wrong or how, on how God is treating you, because that is going to be very confusing. Sometimes he treats you way better than you deserve, and sometimes he spanks you in order to bring it to your attention. But you can't tell which it is. And so you need to decide, am I sinning? By looking at the word of God and discerning what your behavior was like. So how can we tell? We have to be seeking God's word and asking ourselves, are we sinning? Spending time listening to God, examining our hearts, but remembering that the discipline is here because we are loved. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but the author is making the assumption that all discipline is always an action of love. And that's exactly how we are to respond and understand this section. He's trying to get us to see and take the Lord's discipline as a sign of how much he loves us. Just like when we are disciplined by our earthly fathers, earthly fathers, it shows us that they care for us and love us. And I'm so thankful that I have a dad that loved me enough to discipline my brothers and I. 
It showed me that he cared and wanted what was best for us. When I was younger, I would always try to touch something hot or stick my finger in an electrical outlet, but my dad would smack my hand away. Why would he do that? It's because he loves and cares for me. Or whenever I backtalked my mom, he would always give me a talking to because he wanted to show me how to respect and love my mom. My father disciplined me to show me he loves me and cares for me, and I respect him so much for that. And I don't, I don't think everyone in this room or don't know if everybody in this room had the same relationship with their dad as I did with mine. But if we respect our earthly fathers for the discipline and the love that they showed us, how much more should we respect our heavenly father for his loving discipline? And that's the reason of the Lord's discipline, to show us, his, show us sonship and his love for us. But if that's the reason, what is the purpose of his discipline? And if we look at verses 10 and 11, it shows us. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The author shows us here the purpose of why the Lord disciplines us, and it is ultimately for our good for us to be molded and shaped to share in Christ's holiness. His purpose in this is for us to yield in the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Sure, we see in verse 11 where it says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, and that can be true. I didn't like getting spanked by my dad or getting the disappointed look. Actually, I almost wanted to get the spanking more than the disappointed look, but... All this happened for, our, for my good. But I feel that it is so tempting as believers to complain about the discipline the Lord shows us and makes us walk through and see that as a sign that God doesn't love us or that he has left us, which then leads to questioning God on how he has disciplined us for our good, to share in his holiness through terrible, horrific losses. And those losses could be the loss of a job, a relationship. If you have a home, it could be the loss of a home, schooling, scholarships, or the loss of a loved one. And that is the beautiful thing about this chapter in the gospel. If we look back at verse 3 where it says, Consider Jesus, God was working for our good in the gruesome death of his son. If ever we doubt God's love because of our circumstances, we can look to the cross We can consider Jesus and remind ourselves that God gave us his own son so that we might, in turn, become sons of God. And I'm so thankful for the Lord's love for me and showing us his discipline, molding us and shaping us in his character and in his holiness. And sure, sometimes that discipline is hard. It can it can bring us to our knees, but it's That is when we need to turn to him and rely on him and other believers to walk with us. This life is hard, and I see too many times where people come to know Jesus and they think that it's going to be easy from here on out. And sometimes it can be, but it's hard a lot of the time. But we have to keep running. We have to keep enduring. That is the reason the Lord does what he does so that we can do this. That is the reason God disciplined his only son so that we can endure and finish the race strong. And I love how the author ends this section. 
He shows through all the discipline, through all the struggles of sin, how we can finish and end well. Verses 12 through 13 says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak, your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Verse 12 starts by saying, Therefore, meaning everything that was said about the Lord's discipline, everything in verse 11, and the purpose of the Lord's discipline, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your knees. The author is telling us to stay strong and keep on fighting for the Lord's discipline is for our good. Strengthen your weak knees. Don't be scared. Keep on fighting. Keep on running. And how do we do this? We look at verse 13. Make straight paths for your feet. Scholars believe that, this author is pulling, that the author is pulling from Isaiah 35, where it discusses Israel's return to Zion from exile. Make straight paths. This author is saying, remove all obstacles, stumbling blocks, sin, and temptation from your path so that we can continue to run the race to the Father. And if we do not do these things, it says that we will be out of joint and not healed. But when we do make our path straight, the author gives us a way to continue running straight. He gives us four applications to take with us to keep on running. And if we look at the last four verses, it shows us. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We are striving and pursuing peace, not with just the circle that we are in with or our friends, but with everyone. We are also striving to pursue holiness, which in meaning we are pursuing the Lord and fighting sin and living faithfully to him. No one will see the Lord without this holiness, which is why we must make our path straight. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. By it, many become defiled. The next challenge the author gives us is for us to watch out for one another, to keep each other accountable, to be in community, that way that no bitterness springs up and leads to sin. This is why here at ACC and Campus Collective, we push D groups and community groups so hard. We want the people of our church to be kept accountable, to fight sin, to remain fighting, to obtain the grace of God. And if you are in this room tonight and you are not part of a D group or part of a community group, it is not too late. We are not meant to walk in our faith alone, but with one another, sharing our burdens, fighting to keep our path straight. The author continues in verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And this is a continuation of verse 15. To take care of one another, but to live and learn from the example Esau and to avoid being like Esau. And I don't believe that the author is saying that Esau was sexually immoral, but it was showing the seriousness of what sexual immorality brings, and that is unholiness. Esau in this section is meant to encourage us to preserve our faith Esau gave up his birthright, which in doing so, he gave up the holy things of God. So preserve your faith. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from unholiness and unfaithfulness, living differently from Esau. And lastly, the author wants us to see the warning and take it with us in verse 17. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected 
for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And for this, I just want to quote the commentary because I think it just does a great job. It says, by drawing our attention to Esau, the writer presents us with two options. Either we can follow the example of those who were faithful until the very end, or we can follow the example of Esau. We need, to, we need the honesty and the candor of Scripture, not only for its positive example, but also for its negative examples as well. We must not follow the steps of Esau. We must heed the author's warning and run the race with faithfulness by truly seeking to turn from our rebellious ways. And I want to invite the band to come back up as we close and pray. But with this application in mind, we have to do them. We cannot endure the race that is before us if we do not. And some of you in this room have not surrendered your life to Christ. And you're living a life like Esau. But I want to close how we started. And this is not just for the unbelievers in the room, but this is also for the believers as well. But we have to consider Jesus. We have to remember and we have to see what he has done for us taking our place on the cross as a sinless man, dying in our place and raising from the dead so we can have life in him. We have to consider him. If we cannot consider Jesus, if we cannot surrender our life to him and submit to him, we cannot do the ending of this section or this passage. It's pointless. It wouldn't make sense. So consider and remember Jesus and endure the race. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray for the people that are in this room tonight. Lord, if they do not know you, Lord, that they would surrender their life to you. That in this life, whenever the going gets tough, whenever we feel like we are defeated, we know that we have victory through your son. That we can trust in him, that we can continue to fight, that we can endure and we can run the race because you have done it for us. Lord, help us to continue to worship you as we continue to sing in Jesus' name.